Well, we are continuing going through our uh, series uh, we've called The Gospel, No Update Needed, going through the book of Galatians together, and we come to chapter 4 uh, today, and we see that Paul, uh, we draw our, main, our, our focus on the main purpose of Paul's letter, which is this call to not abandon the truth of the gospel, right? To not look to the works of the law, not to look for anything we can do to secure our salvation, but to lean upon rely upon the work of Jesus Christ and the cross as our only means of our salvation. This was the gospel that Paul preached, and this was the gospel they embraced in the churches of Galatia. However, false teachers had come into the church, and they began to mingle this message of grace with this message of works, and it started to sow some discord and confusion, and ultimately, a deception came upon the church. And so he's addressing the problem within the church where they were starting to look at the, introducing the works of the law as part of their gospel narrative. And he is calling them back. He is sounding the alarm to the church at Galatia to return back to the truth that saved them. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They are the solas of the Reformation, the battle cry of the church. There is nothing outside of what Christ has done that can secure our salvation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. All of our works that we are all called to do need to flow out of the truth of that and, and be the response of that truth. Not to earn our salvation, but because we have been given this gift from God. And Paul, with the heart of a shepherd and the tenacity and clarity of a prophet, is calling the church to the one true gospel, a gospel that is sufficient, a gospel that is effective, a gospel that is complete and a gospel that needs no update at all. Likewise, we are living in a time where the clear teaching of Scripture is being negotiated, where the clear teaching of Scripture is being tweaked and softened to accommodate a culture that is far from God. And sadly, many of the pulpits in America and around the world are more focused on current events than they are the sufficiency of Scripture and the clarity of the gospel. And that is resulting in a mass departure and a redefining of truth in our churches. We need to get back to the gospel, back to the Word of God, the letter to the churches of Galatia is very relevant today as it speaks to a culture that is seeking to negotiate or ignore truth, redefine history, create narratives, and place blessing on what God calls evil. What has been clear through the centuries are now conversations to be rethought 
even amongst Christians. There are some things that we don't need to have a conversation about. I don't need to understand or rethink what a male is. I don't need to rethink what a woman is. God has made that abundantly clear. We don't need to have conversations about things that are clear in the scripture. I remind you that the fall in the garden was a result of a conversation. There are some things that we just have to recognize as truth, not open for negotiation. As we look at Paul's letter to the church at Rome in chapter 12, and I just see a real connection with what Paul writes to them to kind of where we're at in the church today, as well as where they were at when Paul was addressing the churches in Galatia. He writes in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He says, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul is calling the church to make sure that they are actively in the word of God so that their minds might be renewed. Can I tell you that there is a, 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 a barrage of deception that is being unleashed in our world today, conversations that go against the clear teaching of Scripture, and I see churches and Christians starting to negotiate truth. Why? What sets the stage for that? I submit to you an undisciplined reading of God's Word. We have Christians, not here of course, but I heard that there are Christians out there (laughs) that are not in the word of God. That the word of God is not their daily bread. You see, there, there there are Christians somewhere out there that don't think they need to be in the word of God every single day. And I'm going to tell you something. If you're not in the word of God every single day, you are going to be susceptible to the deception that is being unleashed in the world today. That is the word of God that transforms our minds. Think of your brain, your mind as a sponge. It's going to be filled with something. And with the amount of stuff that is coming down the pike, the amount of lies and deceptions and distortions of truth, if you are not grounded in the word of God, you're not gonna be able to spot a counterfeit. I've been saying it from the first day I started preaching and it'll be my dying breath. Christian, you must be in the word of God yourself. Every single day, Your word is a lamp unto our feet, the psalmist said, and a light unto our path. We live in a sinful world. And as a result of the the fall, our minds, they need to be renewed. They need to be transformed. It needs to push back against the flow of this world. And listen, 
Preaching isn't going to do it for you. Good worship isn't going to do it for you. It is time in the Word of God where the Holy Spirit is taking the Word of God and making it alive to you. So that, as he says, that by testing, you may discern what the will of God is so that you might know what is good, that you might know what is acceptable, that you might know what is perfect. If you're not in the will of God, you're gonna let outside sources define for you what the will of God is, what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. And I wanna sound the alarm to you, church. Be in the word of God. Allow that word of God to transform and influence your thinking so that when these lies come, you can spot it like a counterfeit. And this short epistle, Galatians, is a call to the churches of Galatia as well as to the churches today to return to the absolute truth of the gospel. A truth that is true for all people, in all cultures, in all times. There is an absolute truth today. The relativism of our culture flies in the face of what God declares clearly. God's word is true. I like what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, echoing what Isaiah writes. He says, all flesh is like grass, and all the glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. I like what he says here. He's all flesh, that's us. All people are like grass. And it's glory. What is that? That's all of our stuff. It's all the stuff that people are impressed by. All the things that maybe we have temporarily on the, in this world. All the things that people aspire to, right? All of its glory. They're like the flowers of the grass. So we've got the, we've got the grass, which are the people. We've got the glory, right? Or the flowers of the grass, which are, is that which we aspire to. And what, Paul, what Peter writes here is the grass withers, gets old. I mean, we can relate, right? The grass withers and the flower, the glory of man, it fades. It's all gonna go. Every cemetery proves it true. One out of one people are gonna die. And you know what? You can't take it with you. The grass will wither and the flower will fade, but the word of the Lord will remain forever. God's word will not change. It will remain forever. As we come to chapter four, Paul is employing many examples, many methods to get this point across to his readers. You know, in a sense, it's a, it's a, it's a tough, Galatians is a tough series to do, um, do, to do expository preaching on. Expository preaching is when you go line by line, verse by verse through the entire book. Uh, what makes it difficult is there's a consistent theme, there's intentional redundancy all throughout the book of Galatians. And so if I were just to say true just to the text, a lot of, we'd be kind of saying the same thing oftentimes all throughout. And so you, you kind of want to mix it up a little bit. And so we're highlighting a lot of the application of these truths but but Paul 
is all throughout this, this epistle, he is weaving this same truth that the gospel is not up for negotiation, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It does not change. Pastor Frank did a great job last week, uh, two weeks ago, closing out chapter three, where, where Paul informs us that in the same way that a child needs a tutor to, to help them, how to understand a subject, the law, as Paul writes, serves as our tutor to teach us that we can't save ourselves. The law proves that we are guilty because nobody other than Jesus is capable of keeping the law. So the law serves as a, a great hand in the sky, if you will, pointing to the cross as our only solution. Unless we think that we're capable of keeping the law, Jesus makes it really clear in the Sermon on the Mount on how that is just not possible. As he's speaking with his disciples, he says, you've, you've heard that it's said that you shall not commit murder. And we'd be like, all right, cool, I, I didn't do that. But I say to you that if you're angry with your brother, you've committed murder in your hearts. Ooh, been there, done that. You've heard that it's said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that if you look at a woman with, with, with adultery in your heart, with lust in your eyes, you've committed adultery in your heart. You see, Jesus is making clear that this idea of sin, it doesn't, doesn't just get revealed in the act of sin, but sin is seen in the heart of a sinful person. He highlights that the action of sin follows a sinful heart. Before there's a murder, there's anger and sin in the heart that condemns us. The law defines for us what sin is but helps us to realize that we're sinners in need of a savior. The law serving as our tutor, it helps me to realize that I'm helpless, that I'm incapable of saving myself. I said in the earlier service, I remember being in ninth grade, and I remember what it was, it was sequ I remember taking sequential one. I hated math, sequential one was like, and I remember looking at that going, I don't get it. I don't, I, don't, I don't understand this. I'll never test through this well. It was like, it was just an overwhelming reality that what they wanted me to know, what they wanted me to learn, I just wasn't capable of getting it. I needed, oh, I needed a lobotomy, but what I needed, I needed a tutor. I needed someone to come alongside me and teach me to, so I might know. And you see, that's what the law does. The law serves as a tutor. The law comes alongside and says, you're sunk. You are as bad off as you possibly could be. But God so loved the world. One came for you that fulfilled all the requirements of the law on your behalf. And if you will let go of every means that you have tried to earn your salvation from and embrace what he has done for you. The law will be fulfilled vicariously through Jesus Christ. And so Paul continues to build on this. This law reminds me 
of my need for a savior. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like a stop, like, like, like a, uh, a speed limit sign. You ever driving down a highway, long trip, and you don't see any speed limit? How many think, well, I guess I can go as fast as I can, I wanna go. Right, we think, all right, cool, I'm just gonna keep on going, right? Until all of a sudden you see 55 miles an hour, it's like, Phew. I guess 95 isn't good, right? I guess that, what, did, what just happened here? I wasn't any, listen, I wasn't now guilty, I was guilty all along, but to see, the speed limit side made me aware that I was breaking the law. I didn't just become guilty, it just made me aware that I've been guilty all along. And you see, that's what the law does. The law doesn't make us guilty, the law raises our awareness that you can't drive 90 in a 55, you're guilty. So Paul continues to build on this point in chapter four. In my, in my study for this, I, I started looking at, wanting to make a, a connection that made some sense as beginning of chapter four. I, I, I started to look at some of the youngest monarchs, just stick with me, some of the youngest monarchs in history. Some of them are well known, some of them not so much. For instance, King Tut, Am I know how, how old King Tut was when he became the uh, pharaoh of Egypt? He was nine years old. Any nine-year-olds here? Eight or 10 years old, right, 10? Imagine, you're in charge of everything. Nine years old, he was the pharaoh of Egypt. But you know what, he wasn't the youngest. Shapur, which I think that's the way you spell it, name it, Shapur II was the monarch of the first, uh, I'm sorry, of the Persian Empire from the time of his birth in 309 AD. Apparently they put the crown on top of his mother's belly when he was still in the womb and crowned him as king. Alfonso XIII was the king of Spain from the day he arrived on the scene in 1886, the day of his birth, king of Spain, imagine that. Jean I, he was the king of France from the day of his birth until five days later when he died, 1311. Mary, queen, and there's some interesting stories behind those that I'm avoiding right now. Mary, queen of Scotland, she became queen at the ripe old age of six days old in 1542. Ivan VI was, he was an old timer, he was two months old when he ascended to the throne of Russia in 1740. Imagine that, imagine these little infants being kings and queens. So how did they rule? Well, they didn't rule until they were older. You see, they didn't walk in the benefits of their position until they came to an age that they could rightly govern. Until that time, they were no different than anybody else. They remained under guardians and managers who oversaw them and oversaw the affairs of the kingdom until they deemed that the fullness of time had come for that king or that queen or that emperor to take rulership and to now walk in what they were destined to walk in. Now keep that in your mind as we come 
to chapter 4 of Galatians. Verse 1, Paul writes, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. And so, because they're not old enough to employ their authority, they're no different than a slave, even though he owns everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Okay, so we got the connection. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So now we're talking about how the elementary principles of the world enslaved us, kept us far from God, right? But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So we were under guardians and managers. We were under the law. We were condemned by the law until such a time that somebody came and took upon himself the punishment for our sins, fulfilled the law of God in our place to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Paul is showing how the law kept people enslaved until such a time that the fullness of time had come where Christ, born of a woman, born under the law, would redeem those who are under the law. And those who were enslaved to the law because of Christ are now adopted as sons. Talk about a transformation. Talk about a promotion. Moving from slavery to sonship. Christ removed the need for guardians and managers, bringing us to fullness of age where we're heirs through God. Sonship. Look at verse six. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, I love that. The most intimate title that we could have of God means Daddy God. Daddy Father. God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. In other words, the law, the religious rituals, the systems, they bring on slavery, but God sent his son into the world to set us free from the bondage of sin and the curse of the law, and so therefore we are no longer slaves, but sons. And I don't mean that just male, I mean like, you know, obviously sons and daughters. And if a son, then an heir through God. Do you see what Christ has done for us? Do you see how Christ's coming positionally changes our disposition before God? The gospel of grace moves us from being under the wrath of God, which we are born under, to being an heir through God. This is so important because how we see ourselves greatly impacts how we live our lives. 
how we see ourselves greatly impacts how we live our lives. That's why I always talk about the importance of knowing who you are in Jesus Christ. Not letting your past define you, not letting people around you define you, not letting the world define you, allowing the word of God to define you. Know who you are in Jesus Christ. Because what ends up happening oftentimes to other churches, to other people, what happens oftentimes is we fall into the same trap that the churches in Galatia did, that we start to think our standing before God is based on how we're doing, how much we're reading, how much we're praying, how much we're attending, how much we're not doing this, how much we are doing that. We start, we recognize we're saved by grace, but then we start to think that that relationship is dependent upon how well I live my life. And we put ourselves back into slavery, back into bondage, and not realizing who we are in Jesus Christ. You're a royal priesthood, the scripture says. You're a holy nation. You're God's own special people. You and once not a people are now the people of God, the scripture says. If any man be in Christ, he's a, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Don't allow your past to hold you back, to define you, or to hinder your growth. Let your past be your past and look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. He that began a good work in you, he'll complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Don't beat yourself up. Allow the Holy Spirit to work on you. And when he begins to point his, his finger on an area of sin that needs to go, give it back to God. Repent of that sin. Turn from that thing, knowing that it's keeping you from enjoying and walking in the blessing of God. It's inconsistent with your sonship. And Paul's cry to the church in Galatia that, that started well and then began to add works to their salvation message. Paul's cry to the church in Galatia is, why would you ever go back to that? Why would you ever embrace the law? Why would you settle for religion? Why would you not embrace the free gift of God offered by grace and grace alone? Why would you choose to put a yoke of bondage back on yourself? That's not who you are anymore. Listen to the heart of Paul. We really get a beautiful picture into the heart of the Apostle Paul in these next number of verses. Look at verse eight. He says, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those by nature, that by nature are not God's. What are you saying? He's speaking of the demonic spirits that controlled the religious practices that kept them in bondage. Deception is not a logical or intellectual thing. Deception is a spiritual thing. Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now... That's what you were. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, 
how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and, and seasons and years. Why would you go back to that is his call. Why would you go back? You can hear the incredulous cry of the Apostle Paul. Why would you settle for anything less than God's best for your life? That's the question I often wonder. When I see Christians that have embraced the truth of God begin to live again like they once did prior coming to Christ, and my, my cry is, why would you go there? The wages of sin is death. They, 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 that's going to bring you back into bondage. It's not what God has for you. Living a life and making decisions like they did prior coming to Christ. Those ways, those decisions are returned back to slavery and are inconsistent with the nature of sonship. We are children of light now. That's why when you do those things, you get that knot in your stomach. What's going on there? You didn't feel that. You didn't get, you didn't get convicted of those things before you came to Christ. Why? Because you were doing things according to your old nature. But now you do those same things. You're like, well, why does it feel like it's wrong now? Because you're not the same. You've been born again. You've been made alive. You've been made aware. Your nature has been changed. And those things are contrary to your new nature. Listen to the heart of this shepherd, Paul, as, as he's watching his flock move towards pastures of, of bondage that they had previously grazed at in the past. He says in verse 11, he says, I'm afraid I have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I, I entreat you, I implore you, I beg you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What is he referring to here? He's still, we all know Paul had some kind of an ailment. We don't know clearly what it was. It, scripture doesn't tell us what it was. We just know it was something he did not want. He, we, we read about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that he goes to God three times and asks that God would take this thing, whatever this ailment was, away. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. For in your weakness, my strength is made perfect. And so we don't know exactly what Paul's ailment was. Some suggest that it had something to do with his eyes uh, for, for a lot of different reasons, things that he hinted at throughout his epistles. But, but this ailment that he had is probably what landed him in Galatia for the period of time that he was in that area. And that's what actually led him to planting these churches. And so it worked out really well for them, right? He says, the hook, he says, you did not scorn or despise me, you, but you received me as an angel of God, as, as Christ Jesus. Wow. You honored me. And that wasn't just him, but, but his, his role in their life and his message. As you received me as an angel of God, even as, as Christ Jesus. Yeah, but it didn't last very long. Look at verse 15. 
what then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. That's serious commitment right there. I mean, I've asked the congregation for a lot of things over the years. I've asked people for a lot of things over the years. I've never asked anybody to gouge their eyes out for me. In fact, if I ever ask you to gouge anything out of your life, it's time to leave the church. Just get just a little heads up right there, right? So Paul, which is part of the reason why, so, why they think that this had something to do with Paul's eyes. Um, he's saying, you're loved me so much that you would have even given me your very eyes. But he says, but, but now have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? He's saying, what happened? Everything was going wonderfully. You were walking in truth, but now you've embraced this deception and at one point I was revered in your life and now I'm your enemy because I've brought truth to you. You can hear the hurt in his writing, the concern. You loved me at some point, but now, now I'm your enemy. You know, sometimes truth divides people, doesn't it? You know, I've learned... I've learned a lot of times that people's rebellion towards God will get directed towards God's people. I've walked with many people and so have you. Everything was going good as we were all serving the Lord and then they kind of detoured. And then, Pastor Dom, they don't call you anymore. And you're like, well, what'd I do? You didn't do anything. It's who you represent. It's who you represent. I think one of the hardest things about being a pastor is having to bring truth to people that you know they're not going to want to hear but out of love for them you see the path that they're on is going to bring consequences that you love them too much to see that happen and so you bring it and sometimes it results in repentance of those things and, and wholeness and fulfillment and that's a wonderful thing but sometimes it, it ends up in all you know what this isn't the church for me anyway I'm out of here and relationships are broken. But Paul's highlighting something I think we've all experienced at one time or another. You bring truth in sometimes, and it's not that they resent you, they resent the truth that you're bringing. And so I just want to remind you, don't take it personal. It's so important to not take it personal. Don't react. Don't, don't fight them. Don't villainize them pray for them that God would soften their heart that they might return not back to you but back to Christ and I've discovered that when that happens there's usually a knock on my door and relationship is restored look at verse 17 Speaking of the, of, the, of the false teachers, he says, they, these, these false teachers, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you, may, that you might make much of them. It is always good to make much, for, uh, make, make much uh, to me, excuse me, it is always good to be made much, too many M's there, it is always good to be made much for, of a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you. What is he saying here? He's saying these, they're following the playbook. That's what all, dece all deceivers do. They come in with flattery. That's what he's saying. These guys, they come, they make much of you. 
you know, you are wonderful. Nobody understands, I mean, I understand you, but nobody appreciates the value of your insight and your willingness to go beyond what anybody else is, and they start flattering and building up, and once you, then they, 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 they get their trust, and then they deceive them. And what Paul is saying is, they make much of you, but of no good purpose. In fact, they're making much of themselves. This is about, it's about them. These false teachers are using flattery to, to lull the, the Galatians into their web of, de, web of deception. But their motive, real motive, was just to promote themselves and their lies. Look at verse 19, my little children, for whom I again am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. He's highlighting, I mean, we're seeing the heart of the Apostle Paul. His concern for the church. Again, concluding those closing thoughts of concern for them because of the gravity of the situation. And what, we're, what, what he's highlighting here is the importance of understanding that there's no changing the gospel. He's saying, I love you but you can't change the gospel. I am perplexed about you. I wish I can change my tone towards you, my little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth. He's speaking of the seriousness to not deviate from the truth of the gospel. The message in our text today is a reminder that God, that God has a wonderful plan for your life. That as heirs through God, we, we have a peace that surpasses our own understanding. We have a joy that rises above circumstances. We have a hope that that cannot be shaken. We have a purpose that goes beyond ourselves. We have a reunion that awaits the redeemed and a plan solely by God's grace to ensure our presence with him forever. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. That's what this is all about. Getting us on over to the other side. The psalmist said it this way, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The gospel is not up for negotiation and in no need, for, no need for updates. Be people of the word. Be people of the word. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you how you have preserved the integrity of the scriptures for us to glean from. 
Lord, would you ignite a fire and a, and a, and a hunger in our hearts for more of you as revealed through your word. Lord, I pray that you'd forgive us of those times that we have not prioritized time in your word. Time that we have been on social media more than we've been in your word. Time that we've allowed the news to inform us more than your word. Time that we've been in front of the TV more than in your word. God, I pray for each and every one of us that you would stir up a hunger in us. For man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. May we be hungry for truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.